0: Oh, Father, it is with joy that we have gathered today, and it is with anticipation that we open our Bibles, and it is with humility that we wait before you, thankful for your grace that you would stoop so low as to reach poor, ornery sinners like me and like these. Father, thank you for the reality of the Christian life, and that it can be lived effectively in the here and now. Indeed, we thank you for the hope of heaven, but in the meantime, strengthen us in our journey, and strengthen us through these pages today, now I pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Will you turn for our introduction to Matthew's Gospel in chapter 13, please, to set the stage of... Returning to Genesis chapter 35 in the life of Jacob, I want to use our Lord's words in a brief dual parable that he used here in Matthew chapter 13 to set the stage for our mindset in receiving the message today. Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 46 paint an interesting snippet of a word picture. It is a parable, a story that Jesus told to illustrate a spiritual reality. I want you to take your bulletin and stick it in the page here because we will, for the balance of our message this morning, be back in Matthew and in the New Testament, but we will be going back to Genesis to set, continue to set the stage and respond to where we are in our story of Jacob and as we work our way through the entire book of Genesis. Matthew's gospel, chapter 13, verses 44, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. And when a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. And when he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. I often think about these two little parables because they bring great conviction to me in my Christian life. And not to discuss necessarily the ethic of this guy. I think he did nothing wrong in knowing that there was something in that field when he made the transaction for the purchase That's not the point of Jesus' statement as much as it is this. There is no such thing as a half hearted Christianity. Do you know that? There is no such thing as this this relationship with God through Christ where we just kind of meander along. You don't find that in the New Testament. What you find in the New Testament is exemplified in these parables what Jesus said. It's like a man walking along in a field, and perhaps he had a stick. That felt funny. And he goes back and he, something wrong with the ground here. Gets down on his hands and knees, scoops the dirt away, and realizes that there's a box. Well, there was no BB&T back then, and so what they would do is shove their stuff in a box, take it out behind Grandpa's barn, and bury it. For safekeeping, and somewhere along the line, probably this field had changed hands multiple times, and nobody even knew that generations before someone had buried a treasure chest out behind the barn. This guy just heading down down to the market to get a loaf of bread for his wife happens to put his stick right on top of a hollow spot, and he realizes there's something in this field. There's something here. And can you imagine what Ma said to Pa when he walked back in the kitchen without his bread and he said, Honey, sell everything we have. Why? No. Grandma's china? Yes. Your favorite deer rifle? Yes. Sell it all. Give it all over because we're going to reinvest ourselves. Same picture with the, the antique dealer. This this merchant in jewelry uh, never saw a flea market he didn't want to stop at, and he's thumbing through and fingering through piles of junk, and all of a sudden he sees something that his trained eye knows. It is a pearl of extraordinary value. He holds it up maybe in a whole handful of costume jewelry. How much do you want for all this stuff? Ah. The guy realizes how much there is there. Goes home, sells everything he has. Do you see the the picture that Jesus is painting? You come to a place in your life where you realize that what we have in Christ, in this kingdom of heaven, in this, this Christianity, in this walk with God, that it is... It supersedes everything else. This is where Jacob is in his thinking in our story. We started into it a couple of weeks ago. Put your bulletin in Matthew. We're not coming back to 13. That was just to create the concept here of, of our mindset. We're going to be in Matthew's gospel, though, and I want you to go to Genesis 35. And we basically covered Genesis chapter 35 two weeks ago, breaking it down and showing you the parts. There's a lot there. There's the death of some important people to Jacob. There is. It ends with the details of a genealogy that includes the new son Benjamin, and so they restate the uh, genealogy. It even out of chronological time. It doesn't happen yet, but even in this chapter is where it records the death of Isaac. And um, we have just some interesting things, but what you need to remember is that chapter 35 comes after chapter 34. That's not a complex thing to realize, but remember that in chapter 34, there's no mention of God. It is utter chaos. It is a family in dysfunction, and it is the result of a man, the head of his home, Jacob, not being where he belongs falling short of God's will, not returning and getting back to Bethel, but being in the neighborhood of the godless. And it's there that his daughter Dinah, who he evidently cares nothing about, she's the daughter of the unloved wife Leah, and she is uh, totally mistreated and abused. He does nothing about it. Her two full-blood brothers are enraged. They do something about it to bring a curse upon their own head later when, uh, when he dies. He's going to going to give them an anti-blessing because of putting to the sword the entire group of people here and committing genocide. And there's evidently about an eight or a 10-year window that includes chapter 34, where Jacob's just not where he's supposed to be. And perhaps that incident, perhaps, is what wakes him up. And he realizes that he's got to get out of the doldrums. Do you know that feeling? He's got to get rid of this half-hearted living for God. He's got to get to where the priorities of his life are in priority. You can talk all you want, but he's got to live it. And we have here him taking leadership in his home. And I want to return to an application point of Genesis 35 that we did not make in our last message And I want to let the Lord use it to challenge us as to the value of living for God completely and be convicted about allowing ourselves to be calloused and lukewarm. Let's reread chapter 35, just the first few verses. Then God said to Jacob, go up to Bethel, settle there, build an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. That was twenty eight thirty years before, so Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Get rid of the foreign gods you have with you, and purify yourselves and change your clothes. Then come, let us go up to Bethel, where I will build an altar to God, who answered me in the day of my distress. And who has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods they had and the rings in their ears, which were related to those foreign gods, no doubt. And Jacob buried them under the oak at Shechem. And then they set out and the terror of God fell upon the towns all around them so that no one pursued them. Jacob then goes up to Bethel and there he built an altar and he called the place El Bethel because there it was there that God revealed himself to him when he was fleeing from his brother. Jacob returns to where he's supposed to be. Jacob gets right with God in essence there. He acknowledges that God has been with him all along. Oh, we know God is with us. But he knows he hasn't been where he's supposed to be. I was processing this in my thinking This week and my meditations and I thought, you know, it's one thing to think a thought. It's one thing to say. We really need some change around here. I don't like my life. I don't like where I'm at in my Christianity. I don't like the. ah, I'm just I'm so in love with the world and I'm so lukewarm and I don't even care about the treasure that's hidden there. And I don't want to sell everything I have. I want to hold on to part of my life. And Jacob, thinking all these thoughts, realizes that his household has become corrupt with foreign gods. His household has become invaded with all kinds of externals from the neighborhood that have nothing to do with God and righteousness. They have everything to do with distraction. They have everything to do with with the downgrade. They have everything to do with calloused, cold Christian living. And Jacob has what I want to call a defining moment. He has to make a critical choice. How do I deal with this? He's the head of a large household now. Probably due to his son's swords, they have absorbed now the women and the children with all the false gods of the neighborhood. He has his favorite wife who kept her father's little household gods and no doubt has kept up her polytheistic beliefs. And I was thinking what it looks like to go out to the shed and get the shovel. What's going on, Pop? Uh, you'll see in just a minute. He goes out and he gets the shovel. He tells them, get everybody over here. This is pop taking leadership, isn't it? This is dad having enough. He's got to go get the shovel in his hand and he starts to dig under the oak tree and he's hacking around the roots. And I don't know if he was mean in his spirit or angry. I think he'd had it. I think he knew that there was radical change that was going to take place. And I think this is a moment that his household never forgets. And he says, Get them all. What? Get all the foreign gods. Go get all the idols off the mantles. Go get all the stuff that's between us and our God. Go get all the junk in our lives. Get those earrings off. And they start piling them in the hole. And he buries them. What a moment, right? What a moment. When he's burying the foreign gods. And I was thinking about that as a way of application to our lives and I thought, is there anything like this in the New Testament? You remember that we memorized 1 John five twenty two weeks ago, right? I've already forgotten it, but it has basically to do with my beloved children do not follow idols. Remember? But we don't think like this, do we? We don't think in terms of having idols on the mantle. We don't think in terms of having the moon goddess stamped into our earrings so that when we worship, we feel better about ourselves. That's what pagans do. I was thinking about, what does this moment look like to the New Testament believer? What does this defining moment of the critical choice look like in the life of the believer? Is it in the New Testament? And as I begin to meditate and ponder through, and you can turn now to Matthew's gospel, and I want you to begin in chapter 22, I decided that I could preach for the whole next year on all of these moments in the New Testament. It's full of it. The New Testament, that didn't sound right, but the New Testament is complete with moments. It is filled with moments. Of the critical choice of defining moments, a couple that had come to my mind right away—and don't turn there—but in Matthew twenty-two is where we're going to camp in a minute here and talk. I was thinking about—I was thinking about how Jesus taught right away in his ministry. It was early on, wasn't it, in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, "The foolish man builds his house on the sand; the wise man builds his house on the rock." What does he present right away? He presents a critical choice. He presents defining moments. Where are you going to build? And the whole point is obedience to the Word of God. The one who builds on the sand is a person who doesn't obey me. That's a critical choice. Do I obey God or do I not obey God? I was thinking about his call to his disciples early on. Walking down the seashore, and there's Peter and James and John and mending their nets and so forth. Come, follow me. What does it say? And they did what? They left their nets, they drop them. That was a critical choice moment, wasn't it? That was a defining moment in their life. Jesus has called me. I am a fisherman. Do I either go with Jesus or do I stay with my stuff? They drop their stuff. They took a shovel, they buried it, they followed Jesus. I was thinking about how the Apostle Paul, in Galatians chapter 1, it's a passage that encourages me, it's about verse 5, in Galatians chapter 1, And he says, do I pay attention to God or to men? No, he says, I have learned that I disregard what men think and I only care about what God thinks. That's a critical choice, isn't it? Getting to a place in our life where we are either going to obey and listen to God or we're going to be influenced by the opinion of the people around us. The New Testament is just replete with it. It's just filled with all these moments. The book of Acts is filled with moments. You're going to stand in, preach the gospel, get your head bashed in, or are you going to walk down the street and go get, a, go get an ice cream cone? Critical choice. Defining moment. No, I will obey God rather than men, Peter says. That's it. It's, it's everywhere, isn't it? And so rather than spend the whole next year preaching on it, whew, I was tempted. I kind of need it. I thought that we would just have two general concepts today. This critical choice, this defining moment in the believer's life in the New Testament based upon the imagery of Father Jacob out there with his clan burying the foreign gods, getting rid of the things that come between me and God. Idols. Foreign gods. The things that are not of the Lord that have become so meaningful to me that they have to be identified as part of the passion of my life. And they have nothing to do with God. In fact, by and large, they they turn me away. They are a lid on my life. They cause me to cool off spiritually. They make me half-hearted. I've got a real heart tug in the wrong direction. In two general areas in the New Testament, I see the demand for the critical choice. The idea that we have to have these defining moments in our lives, actually on a regular basis. And um, one is in the area, number one, of loving God. The other is living for God. Those are two very broad categories. First of all, loving God. The critical choice is... Of loving God. Notice what Jesus said in chapter 22 of Matthew, beginning with verse 34. The Pharisees and Sadducees had gotten together and they were wanting to silence Jesus and embarrass him. One expert, but he had silenced them in return, actually. And then verse 35 says, One of them, an expert in the law, Matthew 22 35, said, Tested him with a question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. There's no wiggle room there. Do you know that? You see, what Jacob knew intuitively with shovel in hand, what Jacob knew that hadn't been written down yet was recorded in Exodus chapter 20. You remember that passage, right? When God gives the Ten Commandments. And he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Exodus 20 verse 3 then. You shall have no other gods before me. And so Jacob knows that if he's going to get where God wants him to go, he knows intuitively what is yet to be written in stone, and that is that we can have nothing between us and God. No foreign gods allowed. That's commandment number one. You shall have no other gods before me. I was teaching this to our Outreach camps that we're doing. If you ever hear the word super in front of a day, you know that that's an outreach camp. It's, it's something that we're having kind of fun with. Uh, Lonnie Puller and Kevin and Carrie Tucker and Jay and Stacy Earl and some of us have a heart for reaching some kids who we think are in pretty tough situations. They're in low-income housing areas. We run the bus, and we pick up about 40 of them. We bring them out here for the day, and we did Super Saturday, and then we couldn't fit a Saturday because our pavilion was booked, so we did Super Wednesday. So now it's kind of taken, and we're going to have some super days. So whenever you have a super, and you hear that announced, know to pray for it. It's an outreach camp. So we picked up about 40, 45 boys and girls who unchurched and from messed up homes and difficult. And I was teaching them the Ten Commandments at our outdoor chapel here a couple Wednesdays ago. They had never heard of the plagues of Egypt. They had no idea. They kind of knew who Moses was. I was laying the groundwork for the Ten Commandments. And as I was teaching them commandment number one, in the morning we taught them the commandments related to God and then the other commandments related to our people, to getting along with people have no other gods before thee. And I told them, and they got really quiet, and they really laughed, and they liked it. When I told them, I said, uh, I told them about falling in love with Janet. And I told them how I met her at Bible college and stuff, how much, and, and they were really listening. And then I talked about my office, how I have pictures of Janet on my desk. You know, let me ask you all a question. I've used this illustration from the platform before, but how do you think Janet would feel if she comes into my office and I really can't remember them, but some of the girlfriends that I had in college, what if I had gotten their pictures and, and I put them in the frames? I put them in the frames where Janet's pictures had been and our wedding picture is. And here's a picture of, of I can't remember their names. What's their names again? Um, <laughs> she remembers them. Well, what if I had put their pictures... And Janie baby comes walking in my office and the kids laugh. They love the illustration and they got it. See, I'm married to Janet. Janet is first in my life. Nobody else comes before her. That's what God says. You're mine. No other gods before me. And Jacob realized that in his household, he had taken God and replaced him with old girlfriends, with old stuff, with junk, whatever. You got to get that out of there and you got to put God first. And the second commandment is right along with it. You shall not make for yourself an idol. Jacob knew intuitively what Moses had yet to write down, and it was that we don't misrepresent God in any way. He is greater than all this, and we don't create images of him. The the great story of the golden calf later on with Aaron and them comes to my mind. This is the God who brought you out of Egypt, and it's a gold calf that he made out of their earrings. How stupid. How demeaning, right? How demeaning to put an old girlfriend's picture in the frame of your wife. How demeaning to call a carved fence post a beloved one. So God says, nobody before me, no graven images. And in the New Testament, back to Matthew 22 now, which is what Jesus is talking about, are those commands that I just said Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 and 38. You shall love the Lord your God. Now watch the language. With all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. You know what I think we have here? We have the reteaching of the Ten Commandments in the New Testament by Jesus himself. And we have Jesus calling us to the critical choice, don't we? It's not hard to figure out. You have to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's hard. It's hard, isn't it? It's really hard. Remember the guy turned uh, a couple of pages back to Matthew 19. And let's illustrate this point with this guy that, that we know quite well. He's titled, The Rich Young Man. In my Bible, Matthew chapter 19, verse 16, look what he says. Now a man came up to Jesus and he asked, Teacher, what good things must I do to get eternal life? That's a good question, isn't it? What, what can I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, eternal life, obey the commandments. Which ones? Show me which ones. I'll do it. I'll do it. Jesus replied, Jesus replied, He goes to the second half of the Ten Commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and your mother. And I think that's where the guy stopped hearing. And I think Jesus was setting him up to get to the main point. Because, you see, this guy, ever since he was a child, had that list. And he'd been checking it off. Do not murder. Check. I haven't murdered You murdered? I wouldn't murder. I'm not capable of murder. Oh, yes, you are. Do not commit adultery. Well, I haven't done any of that. Nope. Do not steal. I have never stolen. I I process these every day, the man says, ever since I was a little boy. This is the kind of place I was brought up in. This is good news, Jesus. This is great news. I've kept these things since I was a boy. And Jesus, of course, is all discerning. He knows right where he's going with the guy. Honor your father. I've done that. I've never dis- I've been the best kid on the block. And love your neighbor as yourself. I don't know if the guy even heard it because Jesus then says, when the guy says, all these I have kept, the young man said, what do I still lack? Jesus said, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Critical choice. Defining moment. There it is again in the New Testament over and over. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. And Jesus goes on to say how difficult it is for wealthy people to enter the kingdom of heaven. I have news for you. This is a room full of wealthy people. And we know this feeling, don't we? You see, what was Jesus doing? Is it part of the formula of salvation to sell everything you had at a flea market, give the money to the poor, and then go follow Jesus? What are you doing? I'm following Jesus, man. Where do you live? I don't live. I sold my house. I'm just following Jesus. No. What's his point? Jesus already said in Matthew chapter 22, if you sum up the law and the prophets, it falls into two categories. Make a list on your yellow tablet, and every rule in the Bible given either falls into one of two columns either how to love God or how to love your fellow man. That's it. So you love the Lord your God with all your heart and then love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus knows that this guy believes that he's good enough to get into heaven on his own good works, he believes that he's kept these laws. And Jesus knows that he hasn't done that at all. And he puts him right to the point by saying, okay, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. What's the point? The point is that if you love your neighbor as yourself, then you could go and sell your stuff and give it to the poor. Right? You could. And the point is, I don't love my neighbor as myself because you can't have what I have. I got a truck and I got a rifle and I got all kinds of things. They're mine, they're not yours. And I don't part with him very easily. What's his point? So you haven't kept the law. There is no righteousness found there. You cannot keep the law on your own. Well, praise God for his grace. Jesus Himself fulfilled the Ten Commandments and He is our intercessor and our substitute. I don't have to stand before God and prove to Him that I've loved my neighbors myself, because the fact of the matter is I don't. I didn't even want to go to the church picnic, I want to go to the beach. <laughs> I care about the church picnic. I felt a little bit bad about the pastor not being there. And I love you, but I love myself and my family and my beach time so much that... You see what I mean? And it's all over the place, isn't it? And I have no ability to stand before God and say, I loved you with all my heart and all my soul and all my mind. And I love my neighbors myself. In fact, I'm a selfish swine. But I, I have a righteous redeemer who kept all that... And by grace through faith, I've accepted his righteousness. So if you go look on the Jesus account, he included me. And then I break out in a new rendition of amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a slob like me, right? But Jesus' point here gets right to the critical choice, doesn't it? He shows us, he shows us how it's embedded in us, isn't it? this love for self and not a love for him, the critical choice. Can I ask you a question? Where are you in loving the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind? It's what we're called to. It's what we fight for. By his grace, he gives us the strength to walk in the truth. The men's Bible study was Steve McKenzie and I appreciate Steve's ministry last week filling the pulpit for me is going to use uh, Francis Chan's book, Crazy Love. And in chapter 8 in that book, I was thumbing through it this week, he calls it Profile of the Obsessed. Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. He says we've got to become obsessed with God. Francis Chan does. He says obsessed is to to have the mind excessively preoccupied with a single emotion or topic to become obsessed with loving God. On the love scale for God, where are you? It's the defining moment. How much stuff do you have that needs to go in a hole somewhere that's keeping you from loving God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind? You know what I mean? If Jacob had the moment, I don't think it's wrong for us to have the moment I'm not even sure it's wrong to have a moment where you literally go out in the shed and get your shovel and go in the backyard and dig a hole and go through your house and pull stuff, junk, and go throw it in the hole and bury it. The stuff that you know is keeping you from loving God the way you're supposed to love Him. I have a friend who did it. I have a friend who his computer computer hooked him like treble hooks in the jaws of a bass destroyed his life, his ministry, his home. And with tears rolling down his face and his wife wailing, he took his computer one morning and set it out in the backyard and he took a sledgehammer and he beat his brand new computer apart to smithereens. Wow. Because he realized that he wasn't loving God with all of his heart, that his heart was divided, that he was lukewarm, that he was pulled away, that there were years that had gone by because of this commitment this commitment had failed. There it is, a defining moment in the New Testament on loving God. That's all we're going to do on that point. Living for God briefly, and then we'll close, okay? Living for God. This defining moment in living for God. Let's just go directly to Colossians chapter 3. and We'll not camp on this. I think you're getting the point. And let the Spirit of God make application in your lives further. Colossians chapter 3, I was taken by the word in Genesis chapter 35, verses 4 and 5 there, where Jacob called for his family to get rid of the foreign gods. And I quickly looked up other places in my NIV where it used the word rid. What do I need to get rid of in my life? I know that I need to get rid of anything that keeps me from loving God with all my heart, with all my soul, and all my mind. Jesus called for that young man to get rid of his stuff and come follow him. He wouldn't do it. Are you willing to get rid of stuff to follow Jesus? Secondly, in, that's for loving God. In living for God, there is such practical counsel in Paul's epistles. And I found that word here in Colossians 3. And I want to actually just take a minute and read verses 3. Um, 1 through 17. Will you follow along? Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. There, That's a critical choice right there, isn't it? Where's your heart going? Set your minds. Who's the noun there? You. Set your minds on things above. Not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to earthly nature. Who? You. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. That's a critical choice. That's a defining moment. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. Which is, there it is, idolatry. Might not be sitting on your shelf, but it's in your mind, isn't it? that idol of greed. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways. You used to, in the life you once lived, did all that stuff. But now you must, here's our word, now you must rid yourself. Get a shovel and bury it. Rid yourself of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Oh, man. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and you've put on the new self. Listen, this is the contrast, isn't it? This is the defining moment. This is, this is the critical choice. I don't live the way I used to live. I live a new way now. I have to wake up in the morning and you're not a marionette, all right? By his grace, we have the power to do it, but it's your job to wake up in the morning and say, this is how I'm going to live. Do not lie to each other. You have put on your new self, verse 10, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion with kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Who? You. Clothe yourself. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. I don't want to forgive. You have to forgive. Bury the anger in a hole. Bury the grudge in a hole. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father. Him. It's all right there, isn't it? Critical choice of the believer, the defining moments of the believer. How are you going to live? Are you going to walk in obedience? You're going to live in the old ways. You're going to let the flesh dominate? You're going to walk by the Spirit. You see? And I was thinking to myself, well, how do you do this? How do you, how do you give yourself to living for God? And let me just crudely break down chapter 3 in three areas. The first thing we have to do is we have to examine our hearts, don't we? Look at verses 1 through 3. Since you then have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. First thing we have to do is examine our hearts. What is it that we value and treasure in our hearts? You talk about half-hearted living, lukewarm Christianity. Why? Why? Why is the church not more powerful? Why are we not making greater impact? Partly because of the hearts and minds of our people given over to the things that are of the foreign gods. Right? First thing I have to do is examine my heart. What do I treasure in my heart? For where your heart is, there's what you're going to treasure. First thing I have to do is examine my heart. Have you examined your heart carefully, defining what it is you really love? Second thing we have to do is we have to exterminate our home, don't we? We have to exterminate our home. We've been at a nice beach house, and I'm embarrassed to tell you about it. It's just incredible. There are some gracious people who provide for some pastors a place to go at Sunset Beach, North Carolina. This is our third year going there. And I pray God's richest blessing on them, and it must be working because they keep rolling. I pray like Yohani in Africa. Yohani prays for us to be rich. Do you know that? They pray in, in Malawi regularly for Fellowship Bible Church by name, and they pray for you to be rich. You know why they pray for you to be rich? They're too humble to pray for themselves to be rich, and they know that if you're rich, you'll give it to them. So I pray for this family to stay rich. And they give me this, this house. It's on a golf course about a mile from the beach, and it's just unbelievable. And Jonathan and I go down in the basement and play pool on this little tiny kid's pool table. And I noticed this year, like these roaches were dead all over in the basement. It's finished off and stuff, but like in the garage and in the basement, all these roaches. And then when I was coming through the garage one day, I noticed that they had drilled all the way across the front of the cement drive. Oh, I know why they're dying, because the exterminator has been there. And he's put the poison in the holes and he's capped it and the bucks are getting them. and, And then they come out to get air and water and they croak. Big old roach looking things dead all over that I picked up. You got to once in a while bring the exterminator in, don't you? You got to get rid of the bugs that defile the house. That's what Paul's talking about here in verses 5 through 10, isn't he? You got to exterminate your house. You got to put to death. Look at verse 5. Put it to death. Whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And then he gives a sampling of the list. But we don't, do we? We coddle. We coddle and take care of the things of the flesh, don't we? We refuse to poke our eyes out for love of Jesus because we love what we love, right? And somewhere along the line, you've got to get a shovel. You've got to dig a hole. And you've got to exterminate it. You've got to bury it. Quit playing around with it. Quit making excuses. The third thing we have to do is we have to exercise for our health. Verses 12 through 17, and you can just figure that out on your own. Sing hymns, psalms, and be with believers. You've got to make it a practice. Exercise the principles of godliness in your life, don't you? So there's Jacob out under that oak tree. Will you burn that picture in your mind? What a profound reality and concept when Pop got his shovel out. I wonder if his boys talked about that. Do you remember that time when Pop got his shovel? Everything was different from that day. So Pop, get your shovel out. Mom, encourage Pop. Kids, quit your whining. Start living for Jesus. Right? It's the way to go. And um, we'll let the Lord fill in the blanks from there. Will you bow with me, please? Let's take a minute and let's examine our hearts and figure out whether we need to call the exterminator in, okay? Figure out how we're going to start exercising for good health. If you were to walk around your house today with a sack in one hand and a shovel in the other hand, start up in the closets and go through the bedrooms and go through the family room and the den and the TV area and the computer area, what goes in the sack? What are the foreign gods that have invaded your home that need to be buried in the backyard? What are the things that have become passions to you? Things that maybe aren't wrong at all, but they've just become really out of perspective and they mean way too much to you. What needs exterminated? What needs buried? Would you try to define a couple of those things today? Stop making excuses and make the critical choice. Become obsessed. When the mind and the emotions become fully committed to a certain thing or concept. Father, surrender is a difficult thing for us. We're rich people and we got a lot of things that we hold on to. Lord, I'm becoming embarrassed about my Christianity. Together, we don't want to be embarrassed about our church. So would you help us, like Jacob did that day, to get with it and remove the foreign gods, the idols, the detractors. Please show us, strengthen us in this pursuit of loving you with all our heart, soul, and mind. Show us what surrender looks like. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.